Hello, I'm Mayor Gentile, and you're listening to Behind the Flicks. This show is all about me sharing as many facts as I know about filmmaking and directors and behind-the-scenes info about movies and whatnot to Ariana, and you'll join us the ride. You'll notice today that uh, Ariana is not uh, on today's episode. Uh, however, she is here in spirit, just a little bit of a scheduling snafu. This episode's guests are producers Effa Akuteka and writer-director Kirby Marshall Collins. They're working to create the short film Ways to Fly. You can donate to their crowdfunding campaign until September 15th, 2023, using the link in the description. We are pleased to have them on today's episode. Welcome. We're going to start with uh, Kirby. Uh, Kirby, would you be able to share a bit about yourself and your film? Yes. Uh, hi, everybody. I'm Kirby. I am a Black TV writer and director, and I mostly like to amplify the voices of like Black and queer people through fun and fantastical coming-of-age stories. I used to do theater, and I directed a lot when I was younger, but it's been a bit since I've directed because I was mostly just focused on trying to like break into writing for TV. But right now we're on strike, so I'm making a short film which is called Ways to Fly. And it's all about this like excitable, hyper-focused black girl who wants to fly like the ballerinas do, but like her barrettes and her hair keep messing it up. Uh, and most importantly, it's also about kind of building off of my experiences as a person with ADHD and what it's kind of like navigating the world and needing to recognize that there are different ways to do everything that we can do. Uh, that's a really fantastic idea for a project. Um, would you be able to tell me a little bit about, to go back even further, what led you to become a writer? What led you to become a director? Oof. Um, I was always obsessed. Yeah, like I was always obsessed with TV. I used to like cancel plans with friends because I'm like a new episode of Kim Possible is on. Um, and for a long time, I mostly thought that it was going to be like mostly writing books. And I didn't really recognize that like, writing for TV was a thing uh, that I could do or that directing was more than just like being the person who points a camera at people. And it took until I was in high school for it to actually click that like I could write scripts. And that's when I started playwriting. And um, also the movie that we're supposed to talk about today is part of what helped me kind of recognize that like filmmaking could be so much more than just like the stories that I was used to. And it could be transformative in a way right that's that's fantastic effa would you be able to share a bit about yourself uh how did you come to collaborate with kirby yeah for sure um so uh i am uh my name is effa i am a uh producer and actually at my day job i'm an executive producer on the side i just do creative producing um but essentially i have just kind of been working in the industry mostly doing digital content for the last um say six or so years and uh really for me that was really by accident um because i kind of graduated into the time where people were starting to use social media more and um it just happened to be that i was getting jobs as like a social media manager in order to have an ability to do creative projects so um uh, i kind of just rode that for years and then now more like be feeling more established and feeling more confident and actually like producing full time um really brought me to a place where i really wanted to focus on um being able to you know not just do well for myself but like i'm really into the idea of like i want to pay it forward i want to get other people 
into this industry and help them figure things out. And especially being a producer, like I've recognized that I felt like everybody around me kind of generally knew the steps to make things, but truly a lot of people don't. Like I'll be on set with a, a camera person who has no idea how the rest of the like post-production goes, or I'll work with a writer who has no idea how to actually put their shoot together. So um, that has kind of just been something that I do on the side all the time is wanting to just do a couple of creative projects every year to keep you know my brain a little bit more active um and kirby has been a friend of mine for a couple of years we went back through a writer's group that a mutual friend started and um when she said that she had a script and wanted to do it i was like hey i would love to help you with this if i can in some sort of way <laughs> and um i read the script i thought it was really adorable and really smart and um so we've just kind of been collaborating for the last couple of months trying to get this thing off the ground fantastic that's that's so you really lead people you guide people uh to do the best work that they can on set and uh throughout the entire production process yeah and i think that like you know another thing of just being a black woman in the industry is like anytime you uh feel like you come you come from an underrepresented group you're kind of just like well let me see who else just needs an extra foot in the door and like whether that's somebody who looks like me or not it's like i love to work with creators of color i love to work with creators who identify as part of the queer community. I love to work with people who just don't have any friends or family in the industry, and this is completely new to them. And there's so many people like us out there who just like don't even know the first step. And so that's where I'm just like, yeah, I have been fortunate to learn all this stuff over the last couple of years. Like, let me help you figure out some of the stuff you don't know how to do. And so really, and I, I feel like that's makes me happier than even just having like a shoot go really well. Oh, that's wonderful. Uh, yeah, it's, it's, I got to tell you with every film I've directed and written and created, it's, it's always a learning experience. And so to, so to have somebody guide, guide you through that process is, is the best gift you can ask for. Now let's dive into the film. And I will say, by the way, this is like Kirby's favorite movie. So I fully let her choose the, the movie. So if I don't remember as many details about it as her, it's, that is why <laughs> so, yeah. no worries uh, i i actually uh i saw this movie first when i was 12 about and uh i re i watched it uh it, everybody can see i have a projector screen right behind me um and i projected the film onto that screen and uh it looks great uh and it was the first time i've seen it since i was 12 so like over like 15 years or something like that um but kirby what made you choose AI artificial intelligence for this episode. I have been like obsessed with this movie since I was a kid. Um, I was at like a family reunion in Alabama and it was playing on TNT in this hotel. And I'd like walked in there just because I was sick of like the way that my cousins were running around. So I was like, let me go see what the adults are doing. And I watched like half of this movie, got totally sucked in because like Jake from Lizzie McGuire was in it. And it was like this kid's running around. It's futuristic Pinocchio. And then we ended up like having to leave before the movie ended. And I kept about it for years. And this is like, yes, the internet existed, but it wasn't a time when like it was really easy to find things necessarily. And so one day randomly I found it in like a DVD bin at Walmart for like $5. And then I played it nonstop for like weeks. Um, and it's been one of my favorite movies ever since. I love that it is this giant sweeping fairy tale. I love that 
There's a lot of great like metaphors and allegories in there if you want to look at the way that the mechas are treated or the robots are treated. And I also just really, I think, connected with it before I even really necessarily had the words for like being a neurodivergent like child who always kind of felt like I wasn't quite right or doing things the way that I should have and like being able to connect with David as he's like exploring the world and doesn't understand how some people see him and how they see him one way and then they realize that something's off and then either like disregard or misinterpret him or like he's in danger or whatever and ultimately it's just like a kid trying to get their mom to like love them and that's just really sweet. Yeah, uh, as I, I in March of last year, I was diagnosed with autism, uh, which is a neurodivergent uh, uh, condition in and of itself, um, inherently. Uh, and so I can definitely, looking back on it, I can definitely relate to that character uh, as well. Um, it's a very powerful, uh, powerful uh, story. Uh, so I'm right there with you. Effa. Uh, could you describe your first time seeing this film? I'm similar to you. I remember watching it probably when I was a teenager. And I, like, I I feel like there was a period of time where I watched a lot of stuff that, like, just was very sort of, uh, I want to say sci-fi. I don't even really fully know if it all counts as sci-fi. But I was just kind of really into stuff where it was about, like, robots or the future or technology, like, uh, I think for whatever reason, when Kirby first said AI, I thought of this other movie called Simone um, that, like, I thought that that's what she was talking about until I, like, looked it up. So um, there was a period of my life where I was just really into this sort of, like, futuristic stuff. And, like, I don't really remember, like, how I felt about it or anything like that when I would have first saw it. Um, but I think kind of now, like looking, being able to look back on that stuff with where we are, you know, like 15 years later, it's kind of like, like Kirby was saying, like sometimes it's really just about seeing those stories that can kind of resonate throughout time. And I really feel like I enjoy looking at a character and being able to see like kind of their journey or how the world perceives them and how they perceive themselves and how they sort of uh, work through that. So I feel like anything where there's a good good character development is going to something that sticks in my head a little bit more oh this this film definitely has character development <laughs> absolutely agree so okay uh kirby uh how did it influence uh did it influence ways to fly or not or just your filming filmmaking path in general this movie i think partially influenced ways to fly less in like tone but more of in recognizing the strength and like really centering your story in the journey of a child who just wants something and I think that there's an honesty in this movie even though it's like deep in a future where like there's robots running around and everybody's like trying to burn them and all this other stuff but like it's more than anything just like following David and following this hope that he has. And I think that that kind of grounded curiosity is something that I try to bring to everything, but especially wanted to bring to Ways to Fly. And it also just like inspires me to remember that there's a lot more that we can say that we just kind of like have to give ourselves permission to go for, because this movie quite literally is like two full entire stories that are just like brought together and 
just recognizing that like there's different ways to tell any kind of story and there's different like opportunities and perspectives and you just kind of have to lean in and see what they're doing maybe you can clarify this for this for me uh you say two stories uh i know the story of david uh the main character uh I, I, but there's also a couple of different threads, like of Gigolo Joe and uh, also of uh, the creator of David. Um, is that what you're referring to, The those two separate time? Yes, because like it really does feel like the first hour of the movie are so close with like David and Monica, like the mom and the family story. And then you hit that like hour mark and it swaps because now we're about to see what's up with Gigolo Joe and see what, you know, Jude Law is up to and follow David's like journey now that he's out of the home. And there's like a big tonal shift, but at the same time, it still feels like it's one through line. But if you wanted to, you could easily be like, oh, these are like two separate stories. That's kind of a Kubrick technique. If you look at, if you think about it, because there's like, if you look at 2001 Space Odyssey, there's all these different like little short stories inside 2001 like there's the story of the dawn of man then there's the story of uh of uh the astronauts going to the moon to investigate the the uh monolith then there's the hal 9000 story so it feels like all these different kind of thread like pieces kind of chapters of of one overall piece a science fiction short story was published in the december 1969 united kingdom edition of harper's bazaar magazine that sh short story was titled Super Toys Last All Summer Long. It just so happened that filmmaker Stanley Kubrick read the short story and bought the rights in the hopes of adapting it into a film. I'm sure our listeners are familiar with Stanley Kubrick, but in case you're not, he has directed, directed The Shining, which I would call the most perfect film I've ever, I've ever seen, uh, Barry Lyndon, probably the single film that most influenced frequent guest and friend of the show, uh, filmmaker Max Hurley, and Dr. Strangelove, which Ariana and I happen to discuss in our seventh episode of this very podcast. Uh, feel free to like and subscribe to that episode on set. I'm doing shameless self-promotion now. Um, <laughs> shameless self-promotion. It's all I've had to do with the whole, like, trying to make this work. <laughs> right. Like <laughs> and subscribe, everybody. Yeah. Um, <laughs> That's half our industry is just promotion. So. <laughs> absolutely. Uh, Kubrick is no slouch when it comes to making great films, which is the understatement of the year. Uh, so it's surprising that he himself never directed Super Toys out last all summer long into what would later be retitled AI, artificial intelligence. There are a few reasons for that. The first reason was Kubrick's legendary perfectionism. He wanted the script to be as perfect as possible before moving on to the pre-production stage, which meant he went through at least five co-writers including Brian Aldiss, the original writer of the short story. Wow. Yeah. That's interesting. Five to know that he was like, the person who wrote the story is still not even good enough to make this the perfect script for me. Exactly. He was like, he, he was like the original co-writer. And then he was like, I got you. You've served your task. <laughs> Maybe jumping first a draft. ahead of like what you're going to end up saying. But like, it wasn't even just that he kept having co-writers like he would be like oh yeah no that's not it and then would tell them to destroy everything that they'd created I and didn't then know would just that. like keep going. 
Yeah, there's this one thing. So like he would talk to them and be like, okay, great. So that's not it. Like one person did a draft and he immediately like he like ripped it up because he was like, that's absolutely not it. Get rid of it. And then another person was brought in and like, I guess he liked hers more, but also in her version, like Monica was an alcoholic. Mm. And then he was also like, yeah, no, that's not it. Get rid of that. Delete it off your computer. Don't want you to have any traces of working on this project. And so there was like this write-up where they talked to a bunch of different people who'd worked on it along the way before it got to Spielberg. And it was just entertaining to be like, he fully was like, I'm so sorry. None of these are right. What was it? Howard Hughes? Wasn't he also kind of like that? Very eccentric, very much like, it's not perfect yet. You're fired, you know, like, um, (laughs) I feel like there's a lot of creatives who are like that. And honestly, the more I think about it, like, you know, especially with dealing with like our short deals with neurodivergence and that's kind of a big theme in it is like not recognizing it in somebody when they're young. And I I sometimes hear these stories about like just an eccentric billionaire from the 1800s. And you're like, did somebody just not catch that this person might've had some stuff going on? Like maybe it just wasn't that well known, but like, yeah, sometimes that level of perfectionism is like, you know, is it just a personality trait because you're big enough to do that? Or is there something else where it's like, oh, yeah, there's a reason why you need this perfection. You, you know, it's interesting. Um, I am I won't go so far as to say uh, that somebody who has passed is neurodivergent because I'm not a doctor, even though I play one on TV. Um, <laughs> however, I think it's safe to say that Kubrick might have been a little eccentric. Yeah. <laughs> It's possible. It would not surprise me at all. No, it wouldn't surprise yeah. me either. Definitely not. Uh, <laughs> the second reason Kubrick never directed the film was that special effects technology from the 1970s through the 90s were not up to Kubrick's standards. Kubrick knew that he needed digital technology to catch up, catch up to his vision. Uh, I've heard about that before. Um, and I think... The same thing happened with Spielberg in some other movie. I want to say... Jurassic Park, maybe? or Yeah, I think yeah. it was Jurassic Park, where he was like, we just can't make it yet for, like, all of the 80s or whatever. And so the first movie yeah. that they made, it was like, cool, we have the ability to now, like, make the dinosaurs. And I think that that's also fascinating to just have this idea and not be able to execute it. Like, oh, that's got to be so frustrating. It's kind of crazy how, like, uh, you, you as a filmmaker, you just kind of had to wait like we grew up, we we're in an era now where you can pick up your iPhone and film some film something. Back in the um, back in film days, you, you just didn't have that. Yeah, know? and it's also fun that you mentioned Jurassic Park being where Spielberg was like, okay, cool, tech is catching up because seeing Jurassic Park is part of when Kubrick was like, oh, we're there, we can start making this movie, we can make this happen. Yeah, look oh, at that. that. That's all... true. Yeah. Coming around together. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, and, and don't worry, I'm going to dive into Spielberg in just a minute. But uh, <laughs> we got we got to f- finish up my man, Kubrick. Cool. Uh, the third reason Kubrick never directed AI was that as the project developed, he worried he could not portray the warmth that was necessary for the sensibilities of the film. He did not think he was the right director for the job. Enter Steven Spielberg. Spielberg and Kubrick have been friends ever since Kubrick was in production on The Shining. In fact, Spielberg was waiting for Kubrick to be finished filming in the Overlook Hotel set 
so that Spielberg could take over Kubrick's studio space, uh, rented studio space, in order to film Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark. Further filming delays on Raiders of the Lost Ark were caused by the fact that, while in production on The Shining, the studio burned down a fire. Can you imagine, as a producer, a set burning down? No, I would cry the second yeah. I heard that. I was, yeah. First, my first thought was, oh, my God, the insurance, um, which <laughs> yeah. I, hate, I hate that that's my thought. But, yeah, I'm like that. Uh, I think that it, it's also funny to like, you know, they, we call them like active God or whatever in contacts and stuff when we write those things up. But it's like, yeah, there's so much stuff that you can't predict when you're making a project that. Like, I always tell people, like, you know, you can plan as much as you want to. It's not being pessimistic if you still are, like, kind of on your toes the whole time that you're on set or even in post thinking that something could go wrong. Because, like, you know, most of the time something is going to go wrong that you had not even thought about or planned for. And you just kind of have to figure it out on the fly. And I feel like that's usually where you find out, like, you know, where really good producers shine is being able to problem solve and be like, listen. I can't help that the set burned down, but what I can do is try to get you, you know, only a month long delay instead of another eight months of delay or something. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Sounds like, I don't know if they figured it out, but Jesus. I, I, I think Indiana Jones turned out all right. The first, the, I think we're <laughs> right. Okay. It, yeah. Yeah. That little B movie that, you know, nobody really talks about. Yeah. I yeah, think I've heard of it, you know. Kind of faded from time. Yeah, I heard, I heard something about it recently. Maybe they tried to do a sequel and see if people are interested now. I, I think I grossed some money. <laughs> Just a few dollars. Some <laughs> yeah. Some pizza, money was pizza made. money. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Spielberg had been an admirer of Kubrick's work since at least the 1960s when he saw Dr. Strangelove. I might have already told this story on our episode covering Dr. Strangelove, but I'll tell it again. Spielberg was in line waiting to see Dr. Strangelove when his father pulled up in front of the theater and handed his son a letter. The letter told Spielberg that the local draft board uh, had called him to potentially serve in the Vietnam War. Spielberg insisted on still seeing Dr. Strangelove despite the distressing news he had just been given. While watching the film, the young Spielberg was so taken by the filmmaking and the comedy that he forgot all about the letter, which was in his pocket, uh, side note, Spielberg was not selected to serve in the military. So it's the power of film. Of Like, uh, Spielberg was immediately enamored of this filmmaker, so much so that he forgot, oh, I might die, be dead in a year. <laughs> no, really. That was a real word uh, back back then, you know? I, I know. I feel like sometimes, though, I don't know if you ever feel this way, Andrew, or even you, Kirby, but, like, sometimes that there are times where life is just going terrible you kind of like feel like nothing's going right and I'm like all I want to do is watch this one show because that will let me like just zone out and forget about my problems um for me I'm I've always been more of a tv person than a movie person so for me I have like two shows that I will just go back and watch and they make me feel like all is right with the world and I I kind of love to hear stories about other people having those moments and this feels like one for him where he's like I, I just want to watch a movie today <laughs> I don't need to worry about what are those two shows, if I may ask? Um, Grey's Anatomy and The Good Place. So oh, nice. If I, want, 
Not something maybe a little sad. I might watch Grey's Anatomy because depending on the episode, you could be in your feelings. But The Good Place is like one of the most perfect shows in my opinion. And I could go on tangents about it for days and days. But I just yeah. feel like it's so well done. To- absolutely. Um, yeah. All of the previous information is to say that Spielberg was shocked when Kubrick approached him in 1995 to direct AI, which Kubrick by that point had been developing for decades. Kubrick wanted AI to be a Stanley Kubrick production of a Steven Spielberg film. While Spielberg considered the idea, Kubrick insisted on two things that Spielberg must do. One, not tell anybody about the project. And two, install a fax machine in the bedroom uh, Spielberg shared with his wife, Kate Capshaw, who played Indiana Jones's love interest in Temple of Doom. Kubrick wanted Spielberg to put the fax machine in the bedroom so that no one would know about AI. And, you know, like nobody, like nobody at all. Uh, not even like his agents or anything like that. However, Spielberg lived in California, while Kubrick lived in England, two totally separate time zones. So, Kubrick would be sending concept art, notes, storyboards for AI, which would then be printed out while Spielberg and Capshaw were trying to sleep. Uh, Capshaw then unplugged the fax machine and put it in another room. In another room. So, <laughs> the, the, sorry to stereotype. The wife was like, "All right, you're, no, I need to sleep." <laughs> that is so funny. I yeah. also like. Um, one thing that I looked up was that they'd been talking about the project like before uh, Kubrick uh, like officially gave it over to Spielberg mm-hmm. and they would just be like talking like every few weeks or whatever. So then yeah. people would be like, oh yeah, you know, like maybe you can squeeze him in for like a 15 minute meeting and Spielberg's like, you yeah, know, we're definitely going to end up talking for yeah. longer than 15 minutes. So definitely tracks that even after like years of on and off talking about this project, they ended up just like having this nonstop stream of messages. But like fax machines are so loud. Yeah. So I fully support uh, his wife just being like, get this out of here. Like I'm yeah. not, I'm not dealing with this at all times. <laughs> I was going to say, I, um, I currently work at a company that's distributed around the world. So I regularly have like, slack messages at like you know two o'clock and i you know have just turned those things off from my phone so that it's not like waking up but like even that kind of stuff gets so disturbing when i like forget to or if i'm just like getting a message from australia at like eight o'clock at night while i'm out at dinner or something like that and yeah i can't imagine working with somebody like Cooper and just him sending you concept art and your wife waking up like I'm sorry, but no, I don't care. I don't care if this is yeah. not in the living room. You know, just, I'm just basing this off of my parents. Uh, like, I, I imagine, I imagine Kate Copshaw was like, uh, this is just, this is me speculating for the sake of speculating. I imagine yeah. Kate Capshaw was like, that, that was a dumb idea, Steve. Yeah, yeah, no, no, you're right. You're right. You're right, honey. You're right. <laughs> oh, you're right. I'm sorry. I shouldn't have done, I shouldn't have installed that fax machine in our bedroom. Yeah, happy wife, happy life, so. Exactly. (laughs) Eventually, Spielberg convinced Kubrick to direct the project himself. However, Kubrick wanted that time for digital technology to catch up with his concepts for the film. So, Kubrick directed Eyes Wide Shut, 
which would be released in July 1999, four months after Kubrick's death. Although Spielberg was already preparing to film Minority Report in 1999, he decided to complete his friend's project. Real dedication right there. Yeah, that's sweet. <laughs> and, yeah, absolutely. Uh, Spielberg had to tell Tom Cruise, the star of Minority Report, that he was going to direct AI first. Tom Cruise, who had started an Eyes Wide Shut for Kubrick, was sympathetic to Spielberg's cause and gave his blessing. You know, Tom Cruise, giant movie star, really great actor, and Scientologist. So let's just, let's just, I'll leave it at that. Do you guys feel like there's a director who you would like go out of your way for it? Kirby, you go first. I feel like you, but I, at the same time, I don't know. Like immediately my brain was like, well, anything that Jordan Peele is trying to do, I am just fascinated. Um, super excited about the work of Nia DaCosta, um, who did, you know, the recent Candyman, who's about to do the Marvels, who did uh, Little Woods, which I saw twice uh, because of how much I loved it when it first came out. Um, I don't know. I feel like there's other people, but I feel like questions like this always make me forget anyone who I've ever <laughs> seen make a thing in their life. Yeah. yeah. Um, Paul Thomas Anderson is my favorite filmmaker ever. Uh, not not just working today, but ever. Uh, so I, I would do anything he says. <laughs> no, no, really. He, I love he, it. He, he, he would ask, he would say, I, look, Andrew, I got, I, I'm sorry, but you got to jump off this cliff. I'm afraid of heights. <laughs> I'd say, well, is the camera rolling? You know, that, that kind of thing. <laughs> Although Spielberg used the work of Kubrick's previous writing collaborators, the final screenplay for AI artificial intelligence was the first screenplay Spielberg penned on his own since Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Another great science fiction movie, I think. Yes. I also read that um, all of the work from the previous people was basically compiled by Kubrick into this like 90 page treatment, which is ridiculous like a treatment should never be that long at that point it's not just a treatment anymore it's got like every detail that you've compiled and all of the different like graphics and everything else so Spielberg was like I'm not going to give this to yet another person like it's gone to so many different people like I'm going to see through that vision yeah yeah it'd be hard to communicate a one director's vision to another director and then communicate it to a writer you know you know what I mean for the special effects, Spielberg enlisted Den Dennis Mirren, who had previously worked with Spielberg on Close Encounters and Jurassic Park, as well as with George Lucas on the original Star Wars trilogy. Uh, another special effects supervisor on the film was Stan Winston, who had worked on Star Wars. Winston was in charge of creating and executing the animatronics used for the character Teddy. Now, that's, that's, I, that's probably my favorite character in the movie, personally. I, I love that character because it's like a great comedic, kind of comedic relief, kind of like a great guide character, you know? He's a great, like, sidekick and friend. Like, he genuinely supports David. And he also is a little annoyed with him at the beginning because he's just like, dude, what are you doing? But, like, he's right there with him. By the way, also on the special effects team was then model maker Adam Savage, who would go on to co-host Mythbusters on the Discovery Channel. I love that show. Adam's my favorite. Yeah. 
Haley Joel Osment was hot off the success of M. Night Shyamalan's breakthrough film, The Sixth Sense. To play the part of David, Osment decided to avoid blinking as much as possible. That's crazy for a child actor, right? Like, to, to have the skill to not blink. <laughs> yeah. Also, whenever I think of people not blinking, I think about how unsettling Nightcrawler is and, like, the fact that Jake Gyllenhaal, like, never, like, he only blinks a few times in that movie or whatever. I remember I used to know the number, but it stressed me out to know the number of times that he blinked. And who framed Roger Rabbit, Christopher Lloyd, uh, for the villain character, he he didn't blink in any shot. Yeah. Thinking of the villain of that movie always just stresses me out. Like, it is so <laughs> creepy once you get to the se- No. <laughs> yeah. It's terrifying. Yeah. That was one of my favorite movies as a kid. I, I watched that, that movie. movie so many times. And my mom was like, this is, this doesn't seem like a child movie. I thought you were watching it. <laughs> right. I mean, part of it's a cartoon, so you weren't all wrong. Those were yeah. 80s cartoons. They're they're a totally yeah. different genre. <laughs> they got away with a lot back then. Oh my god, yeah. absolutely. The blinking thing is crazy. Though. Like now, I feel like it's one of those things I wouldn't have noticed. But when you hear somebody say it, now if I go watch any of these things, I'm going to be looking at how much people blink. Haley Joel Osment. He he's a really he he was is a really good actor. Oh, I was just going to say, especially like the second half of the movie, when you're really seeing like David's world and his like worldview, like shattering around him. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's amazing work. Also, yeah. like the moment when he imprints on Monica mm-hmm. and the shit that you immediately can feel from just when he was any old, you know, robot child to once it was like, oh, no, this is my mother and I love her. It was astounding. Right. Oh, totally yeah. agree. Yeah. Honestly, any kid who has the ability to, like, working with child actors is so fascinating because, like, you either end up getting the ones who it's like, oh, they just, it's something fun that they want to do, their parents not even do it because they're like, yeah, sure, I'm not going to say no to my kid. And then there's the ones who it's like, oh, you can act and you're six. Like, that's, yeah insane to me (laughs) that like they can get across emotions or feelings or thoughts that they probably can't even really process yet as like understanding what that really means and feels like when you have the kind of like consciousness of you know even just a teenager or like a let alone a fully grown adult so when you see somebody who's like you know I want to say under 15 and they're able to like do all these things that I would only expect an adult to be able to interpret well enough to act out um it's always just a little bit more powerful because it's like wow i i don't know where you pulled that from but shout out to you i feel like i've spent a lot working with kids because i used to do like youth theater and i used to like teach them and different things like that and still there's a part of me that's like nervous about the fact that i have to like direct a child for this short just because i'm like all right let's see who we find um, and let's see, like, what we can actually, like, bring out of them while still making sure that they're not just, like, hyperventilating somewhere because they have to do something that's just stressing them out. Like, even just having to have a moment where you're, like, freaked out about something, yeah. but your body doesn't know the difference between you pretending versus you actually experiencing it. So, um, yeah. 
that's a good good point because like yeah something like this i mean for all intents and purposes he seems to be a perfectly perfectly functional adult um you know there's plenty of child stars who it's like we know that they've had issues as they grow grew up but he seems to have been you know sort of well insulated and i do feel like there's a growing number of like child actors who like i think marseille martin is a great example like starting on blackish when she was super young and now i think she's maybe just turned 18 um and but it's like there's so many kids from this same sort of era i think as like kelly Joel osmond's sort of childhood acting that clearly didn't have good people around them so like you're saying if you're acting out something like being a robot it's like it's really easy for you as a child to not really know what's going on in your life <laughs> and to just kind of confuse fantasy and reality and work and all these different things so uh, I always kind of get a little nervous too when I see kids um, child child actors just doing stuff and it's like I hope this doesn't like fully scar you for life that you're yeah. acting in a movie where you did x y and z and then like you just have that memory forever um, yeah. so yeah, I don't know. I, that was just a weird tangent of me being like, man, I'm an adult. And sometimes I do things. I'm like, did that really just happen? So I can't, I can't imagine doing it at like whatever other age. AI artificial intelligence was successful, grossing over $200 million at the box office. Although critical consensus is largely positive around the film, such as from guests in front of the show, critic Joseph McBride, it should be noted that there are critics and general audiences who wonder what could have been had Kubrick directed the film, uh, as he intended to just before his death. In fact, one air random internet stranger uh, took the film and edited it down into a version called the Kubrick Cut, which makes several changes to the film, which I will not list here because it's just the final film except shorter. Uh, however, listeners, if you're so inclined, the Kubrick Cut of AI is available on the high seas of the interwebs. So honestly, that's just a side note because it's like some guy was like, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm not happy with this film. I want to see how Kubrick would have done it. So I'm just going to chop it up and gain some traction. So anywho, it's kind of interesting how like fans take ownership of art. That's all. And they do, of course, how like, especially once something is out in the universe, it's not yours anymore. Like, it does kind of belong to people and their interpretations and whatever else. I do think it's wild to be like, yes, person who is friends with Kubrick and collaborated with him for years. I know what he would have done better than you do, Uh, even though Stephen was, like, specifically trying to do the movie in as much of, like, Stanley's likeness as possible to, like, honor his friend. Um, So it is kind of funny just to be like, I know what to do. Make it shorter. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Effa, Kirby, final thoughts on AI, artificial intelligence. Kirby, this is all you. What do you want to say about this movie? Why do, why do you feel like everybody needs to watch it? I think everybody needs to watch it because it is a movie that's steeped in, like, loss and, like, a meditation on, like, love and humanity and what it is that we need to be humans in terms of just like that love is part of what propels us forward and also that love is what keeps like humanity alive in terms of like the memory of our existence in this like post-apocalyptic science fiction world and I think especially when you talk about like the good place which is all about like what do we 
owe to each other and how do we work with people this movie is partially like what is our responsibility to like the people we love and also how the second that you do love something you also worry about losing it and kind of navigating that I think is helpful um also the main thing that I think we should take away is that we need more fairy tales that are updated in like a good way um no shade to any other recent like fairy tale adaptations but like that are updated and like expanded upon not just I made the same thing again like dig deeper into the myth and the story and what you actually want to be saying about humanity and existence explore the meaning of those stories yes that's a much shorter way to say it (laughs) yeah that's actually a really great way to put it I didn't think about it as like a modern day fairy tale so to speak I feel like we imagine anything that's a fairy tale has to be from like the brothers Grimm, and it's like yeah maybe we do just need modern day fairy tales for people to still pull away those same morals and learnings and lessons and stuff like that but just in a scenario I guess that feels in some way shape or form more recent and more relatable and more you know with the times I guess you could say even though this is still kind of ahead of its time in in a lot of ways it's just like yeah the the core messaging is what matters so yeah more modern day fairy tales this is kind of like a great myth uh which is which is uh very powerful um and it's kind of it's a film of magic while at the same time being a futuristic fable so totally with you on that one uh my final question for you effa what do you have to promote where can people follow you uh i have to promote ways to fly the short film that me and kirby are working on (laughs) um basically uh as you mentioned in the beginning like we are still in our crowdfunding phase we're going with our crowdfunding campaign until september 15th um so really really looking for people to support us there and um help us to make you know a new modern day fairy tale modern day fable um and uh really really like you can you can follow us um the short film has its own like instagram page you can follow us on social media uh you can follow me at a y e underscore e f f i e so that's at a f e um and so that's where you can see whatever i do which is mostly just having fun on the internet in between um work meetings um and then of course you <laughs> Kirby, don't laugh at me that's basically all i do is i'll get 15 minutes in between meetings and i'll go and watch a bunch of reels and repost them so um whether or not you find me entertaining i hope that people can support the short film and once we actually have it out in the world and can show it to people i really hope that it helps other people to kind of see a little bit about um, a little bit of themselves in whatever kind of way they can in the characters. So that's the best way to support me right now. Kirby, final question for you. Same question. Also the short, um, the Instagram and Twitter are at ways to fly short. Um, I added in short because it just seemed a good way to keep things all together. Um, you can also follow me on Instagram and TikTok at Kirby said, as in like, I talk a lot. Um, and mostly I just post silly little memes and, um, 
try to convince people to watch the movies and TV shows that I'm watching. So if that's something that speaks to your spirit, please do that. Uh, and you can also obviously share like the campaign or anything else about the short if you want to help out peeps because we're just trying to see what we can do and make it happen. So I will also say Kirby's, if you do follow Kirby, um, she watches a lot more movies and stuff than I do um, and will regularly just be like, here's three movies I saw this week and whether or not I think they're worth watching them. So that has been helpful sometimes when I'm just like bored and I'm like, I think Kirby said that this movie was good. I might check it. Yeah. Love doing short little reviews of movies. Just mostly be like, hey, this is something you should probably check out. Hey, this one, mm, maybe not for you if you don't like, you know, action movies or whatever. That sounds right up my alley. And I encourage all our listeners to follow Kirby and Effa. Thank you very much for joining our discussion. Uh, do you want to stick around while I do the uh, end end uh, screen, or do you guys got to get going? Yeah, no. sure. We can stick around. Okay. Uh, just uh, just uh, sit there awkwardly while I read the uh, final final uh, tag. Uh, listeners, if you have any comments, questions, or suggestions for future episodes, feel free to shoot us an email at independentcareerstudios at gmail.com. If you like this episode, please write a review and subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, or YouTube. We'd love to hear your feedback. Behind the Flicks was created by myself and Ariana. I researched, wrote, and edited this episode. My name is Jan Gentile. This has been an Independent Career Studios production. <laughs>